I don't think that people have enough respect for the reality of the world of the internet. People tend to think of real life versus online life. Mm. I don't think there's a difference. They're both ways that we're living and interacting with each other and they both completely affect each other. Yeah. Hello, I'm Dave and welcome to the Getting Better Acquainted 200 season five episodes where the tables are turned and instead of me having conversations with guests guest hosts interview me the shows will be coming out daily from the 16th to the 20th of march and they're there to celebrate over 200 episodes of my in conversation podcast getting better acquainted As part of that celebration, I'm going to be shouting about previous episodes on the show's Twitter feed, at GBA Podcast. If you want to join in the celebrations, if you'd like to share your favourite episodes and your thoughts about the show, I'd really love that. The hashtag that I'm going to be using is GBA200. So join me with the celebrations over on Twitter. This is Getting Better Acquainted 200 Part four with Jen Adamthwaite. You can find Jen on Twitter at Jadamthwaite and you can check out her writing on her website www.jadamthwaite.co.uk. Jen asked me to edit this episode the way I would normally edit an episode of Getting Better Acquainted. From a content note point of view, this episode touches on experience of bullying and on mental health issues. It touches on those areas relatively lightly. There is a reference to suicide and suicidal thoughts, so be prepared for those kind of things coming up. Today's theme tune cover is really quite a special one, and I think it speaks to something that isn't that present in this GBA 200 season, which is the the intergenerational personal family element. It's a cover from Alistair Binney Lubbock and his gran. At least it's sunny out. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous, huh? It's beautiful out there. Makes you glad to be alive, doesn't it, Grandma? Mm. (laughs) Oh, miserable face. Well, you'll be able to sing this first line with conviction. Okay, you ready? I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. That was very good. Thanks, Grandma. Today we're getting better acquainted with Dave. Hello, Dave. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) This is really weird. So the first question you ask everyone is, how do you know me? So, how do you know me? We met at university. We met when I was being a dick, uh, really early in the morning at the first lecture that we both had, no, seminar, the the first moment in university that we were having teaching done to us rather than our first week of, of whatever it is, freshers week. We went to our first lesson early in the morning at 8.30 and it was creative writing and I was reading The Guardian, which was then a broadsheet, so it was nice and big and squatting down against the wall so that I was hid, so I just probably looked like a hat above a Guardian. Yeah, pretty much. And uh, you said, oh, it's a bit early in the morning uh, to be to be, to be be doing this, ner- like nervously and, and nicely to the, to the other people kids I guess we were all kids ice breaking I think yeah you were you were you were as I I know now you're you're someone who's socially in some ways a bit socially awkward and you were sort of facing your fears in that moment and how you responded to was me pulling down my broadsheet guardian newspaper and uh, saying I like to start every week with writing and then pop back up hat again just a hat and a newspaper and the uh, sense of a an incredibly dickish human being. <laughs> uh, and that's how we met. Yeah, that's how I, that's how I met you. But how I know you is more complicated than that because we eventually 
started going out with each other despite this terribly... Uh, well, it wasn't really eventually. It was quite quick, six, really. Six months in, I reckon. Five, yeah. Right, five. No, four, because we started in October. Five, well, four months in, but still, like, there was a there was a process of you working out I was less of a dick. Yeah. That started when we weren't going out and kind of ended maybe our second date, somewhere around then. I think probably the first one, because I don't think I would have agreed to go on the second one. Right. I think it was the first one. Right. I accidentally agreed to go on the first one. I didn't accidentally agree to go on the second one. Yeah, you accidentally agreed to give me a number. Yeah. Then you accidentally <laughs> agreed to give me a, a, to go on a date with me, and then yeah, yeah. I mean, I I don't I don't. In lots of ways, people find our getting together story quite charming. Sometimes I've done it at Spark a few times, and people people like it. They find it kind of heartwarming. And we haven't really repeated it all here. Uh, there's a bit more heartwarming than what we've presented today, but. Uh, I sort of don't feel that way about our getting together story. I actually feel a little bit uneasy about it. I feel like dancing at you in a club, as I like to say, is a little bit kind of problematic and sort of like getting in your face and then ringing you up early in the morning. I understand why I did that the next day. Like when you give me your number that that night and I rang you, how how early do you think I was? I don't know. It felt really early. I like, I kind of think of it as being... And it was the equivalent of seven o'clock in the morning, but I don't think it was that early. I think it's just in like student times, it was early. And, you know, we've been out the night before, so it had been a late night. And so I know why I did that. Like I was nervous and anxious and uh, all of that stuff and didn't quite understand how to not be, you know, so desperately in someone's face. But from, from your point of view, you were kind of bamboozled into that, into that first date. And so I feel like... I feel bad about that. Um, and I do feel bad about being a dick that first time I met you. I mean, it's like all of the like things that I'm the most ashamed of uh, uh, doing, like, I like the qualities story. in me. The, the, I think that was, you know, everybody was nervous in that situation. And I don't remember what anybody else did on that at that time. But I bet, and I remember that there were quite a few of us there outside waiting for that lecture. But I only remember that moment. I don't remember what everybody else said or did or what happened after that. Right. But there's, there's but, sort of... the. The elements of the way I behaved, I guess, is the kind of elements of myself that I hope I've got rid of uh, that I think comes from insecurity and being like uh, mixed up and stuff. But I think that's not a full excuse for them. And I I, I regret my behaviour. So I apologise now, (laughs) 14 years later. But it was even though we sort of got together in a bit of a sort of uh, silly way, surprisingly, we've had a lot in common. And, like, it's been great. 14 years. Nearly 14. Yeah. Uh, 14 yes. next... Next Saturday or the Saturday after? Uh, Saturday after, I think. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, that's how I know you. Uh, we go out, or we are partners. Okay, so my adaptation of the second question that you ask everybody is, what do you do on social media? What do I do on social media? <laughs> what don't I do on social media? Spend a... A fuckload of my time on social media. You do? I'm not very good at not check. Like, I'm... The first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is look up social media. And it's probably the one of the last things I do before I go to bed. It's surprising to me because I, I was a late adopter of social media. Everyone else was on Facebook ages before I was. And, you know, I, I took even longer to go onto Twitter, which is... I don't know. I like both Facebook and Twitter, not the companies that that they are owned by, but the social media opportunities, the alternative life, the alternative reality of social media I like. I like Twitter probably more than I like Facebook, although I'm much more scared of Twitter than I am on Facebook because Facebook's a bit more of a safer space because it's people I know and I can... It's not there on yours, is it? Yours isn't private. Oh, it's public. Yeah, that's true. So Um, really it's the same... Yeah, but it's just, you know, I, I have less less followers. I have less uh, opportunity to get into arguments with strangers. Yeah. But I, what do I do? I do... I tell people about my, my thoughts, my, like, observations, uh, kind of little bits of poetry or jokes 
So there's a kind of creative element to it. Uh, part of that is I set a theme for people every day, the push, which I set for you, which is a, a very short story theme that happens daily. At the moment, I'm doing a poet, a line of poetry every day uh, of the year that I started this year. It wasn't my idea, but I'm doing that. That's uh, set up by Kirsty Higginson, isn't it? That's right. And I share a lot of political stuff that other people... I share a lot of political stuff that I find through other people. So Twitter is my main source of news. I follow people because I either trust their news gathering abilities or I disagree with them vehemently because I, I want to get a balance of news. I get, yeah, I get all of my news through Twitter really and then I often then put that onto Facebook. So in some ways I guess I'm a, a, a person who is... Uh, spreading around information that's what I do and other people's tweets you know political tweets or or not political I mean it's it's but it is a big part of that it's where I it's where I do any kind of activism in inverted commas because I don't know if it's activism when you're not being that active is through Twitter uh, and Facebook do you only share things that you agree with no definitely not but I I, I share things that I agree with some of the stuff in or that I see, I think, have a unique perspective that isn't being heard, like a counter-argument, counter-narratives to, to what we're told, generally speaking. But, I mean, if I if, if a new situation's going on, I, I search on Twitter. Like, I don't just rely fully on my followers as well. There's, there's a lot. Really, I don't know what I do on social media. If you analysed it, it would be really quite complex, I think, what what processes I go through as much as people who don't like social media will think it sounds silly to describe social media use as complex I think it is it is quite complicated what I do like I do follow Friday every week uh, where I recommend the articles and tweeters and causes or whatever that I've been been most influenced by that week and when I do that I go back down my timeline I, uh, I I sort of collect all of the people who I've retweeted into two categories, people who've made me laugh or smile and people who've made me think or feel. I've made, so I've got the those two categories and then I've got like sort of, then I go through the articles and find the people who wrote the articles so I can link directly to them in the Follow Friday rather than the person I got the link from. And that's just one of the things I do on social media and I'm already going, like it's a lot of complicated admin, uh, a lot of my social media use. And I, what benefit I get from it, I don't know. It's changed my life. It's changed my views. Like, I've become much more... My political views have changed a lot, I think, since using social media. So. And it must have changed... I mean, you're f I can't really remember what you did before it, but as you said, you were a late adopter of both Facebook and Twitter, which must have given you several more hours in the day than you currently have before you used those things. What, what did you do with that time before? Yeah, that's a good point. Although I think that a lot of the time I use in a day on social media would have been taken, would have been dead time anyway. Like I, I'm on social media a lot of the time when I'm walking, which is dangerous. People shouldn't do it. But I would have not, you know, when I was walking, I would have been walking. So that time would have been wasted anyway. Well, that isn't just when you use it. You use it, as you say, first thing in the morning when you get up. You, yeah. You're... Yeah, no, definitely I've lost time. Mm. And what did I do in that time? I read. I definitely think that a big part of why it's so hard for me to find the time to read books is that I'm too busy reading social media. I don't think that social media is less valid than books, but I, I do miss books. I do like books and I I want to be able to read them more. Uh, but what did I do before? Yeah, I read. I, I must have, I would have written down notes in my notebooks and stuff. I was always writing down my thoughts on the world. I just couldn't share them as instantaneously before I got into to Facebook and stuff. I used to blog as well. I used to, mm. and they were, I didn't, wasn't a very good blogger. So I used to waste a lot of time to, to, to write not very good blogs. I think I in a way Twitter's very good for you because the problem with your blogs was not that they weren't good in a way, but they were really long. So nobody was really likely to read, read them, them. Um, but Twitter forces you to have to use a short space of time which is really good for someone like right you. and it means if I ever do write a blog and it is a long blog it's got it's more likely to be read because I'm not bamboozling people all the time with longer blogs and also it's more likely to be worth blogging about because it takes a lot to go right like I'm gonna sit down and write a long form thing 
But I mean, it's it's been really valuable to me, social media. I mean, when I was leaving my job last year, which I was doing reluctantly, I was as a result of the cuts, it wasn't my choice. I mean, I was blogging about, or not blogging, sharing my pictures and thoughts about the last days of that job, like the goodbyes from the children, the things that the children and the parents said. And that became the basis to me writing a blog about it. And that blog became the basis to me writing a comment is free piece mm. about it. So in that respect, it, it did bring that story out to a wider range of people. My friends were sharing my posts even as it was happening you know it was making the the situation that is going on with the cuts like real to people and being very direct and there's other things like that like with mental health I've I've become more able to to define myself as having depression and anxiety through social media and I've also had so much like positive like responses like when I've been sad and other people have said you know I also feel that way that there's so much to hearing somebody else saying, I also feel that way, mm. that validates you in the, in a way where you don't feel like ashamed as much for feeling that way. You don't feel as alone. Um, so it's done. I mean, I've, and I've, I've got friends through it. I mean, I've, I've, I've got become friends with people. I've, I've met people for this show through, through Twitter. I mean, ultimately, you know, it's, 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 it's been amazing, uh, social media, and I, I don't regret it being there. Um, but it, I do miss I do miss reading. <laughs> <laughs> if um, if social media was I don't know if Facebook and Twitter crashed today and weren't able to come up, what effect do you think that would have on your life? Well, that's the thing. I do think about that a lot because I, I I don't think that society is sustainable, generally speaking, and we're going to run out of oil. We've got tired of terrible environmental situations. I love the internet which is more than just social media. And if all of that went, which could happen, I mean, the, the internet is just big computer boxes in warehouses in California or whatever. Like, if it all goes down, it'll be like the Library of Alexandra. You know, all of that was lost. All of that knowledge was lost. But on a much more massive scale. But I reckon if that happens, I'll have a lot of other things to worry about and they'll probably keep me busy through the days. Mm. But, but, I think that's definitely true, but I wasn't really talking about in a big end-of-the-world sense. I was just thinking, you know, just on the face value of that disappearing. If just those things were taken out of your life, how would them not being there influence you? Well... I don't know. I mean, sometimes when we have adventure days, like we have days where we cordon off some time to see each other and to connect with the world rather than be stressed in our lives, right? On those days, I don't have the phone on me, do I? No. And that is a strange feeling for me. It does make me kind of like I'm disconnected from a part of my actual reality. Like, And you don't like being left on your own. If I go to the bathroom or something and you haven't got Twitter or... Right, Facebook, you. you don't really know what to do with yourself, do you? <laughs> no, I don't like silence. Um, and so social media has given me one way of silencing that that silence. <laughs> but before that, I listened to things. I always listened to, to sound all the time. In fact, now I listen to things a little bit less, I think, because I'm on social media all the time, because mm. you don't need to have sound, because you've got the, the words in front of you to distract you instead. But yeah, I used to listen to like Walkmans and stuff like that. So I guess I would get back into doing that. Maybe I'd become comfortable with silence. That would be a handy thing to be able to develop, <laughs> right? And I think it would be healthy sometimes to, to go offline for a bit. I don't think that people have enough respect for the reality of the world of the internet. People tend to think of real life versus online mm. life. I don't think there's a difference. They're both ways that we're living and interacting with each other and they both completely affect each other. Yeah. And that's one of the problems, you know, sometimes internet horrors spring into people's realities. But equally, you could say that people's people's real life horrors always spring into the internet. Like yeah. misogynistic abuse that people experience online is sent out by people who are real people. 
And who are probably misogynistic, even if it's even if they're not as bravely misogynistic right. in their ordinary lives. Yeah, I mean, and the, the the things of the internet are so complicated. Like, so yeah, it means people can get together who've got mental health issues and understand that they're not alone. But it also means that white supremacists can get together uh, and know that they're not alone, or or you know, pro anorexia groups can 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 get mm. together. You know, there's so many strengths and weaknesses to minority groups being able to be heard but I think ultimately that's one of the things that I find has changed my thinking and is is so brilliant about social media and the internet is minority voices being able to be heard alternative narratives to the media we can take some control of our media we can make our own like one of the things I like about selfies is we're in control of how we want to look um, and that's why I want to feel comfortable sharing selfies more and I try to take selfies more. You, which you do, don't you? Yeah, I do. But, I'm, but I take a lot more selfies than I ever show the world. That's true. But yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, like I think it is helpful in some ways, though, to be disconnected sometimes, though. Like I said earlier on, the internet might not be here forever. We don't want it to completely devastate us. But also thinking all the time about things and always being aware of other people's lives isn't always healthy, I don't no, think. No, I don't think so. And also I think it can take you out of the moment in quite a stressful way and sometimes I wonder if that doesn't make you more anxious at times. Like if you're in a, a period of anxiety, it might be more benefit. although it's, it might be beneficial to sometimes talk to people on Twitter about that, it might also be beneficial to just be in the moment and not be worrying about how you're sounding on Twitter to somebody or yeah. worrying about somebody else's problems problems at the no, same time I, as your own. Absolutely. I mean it's it's when I'm in a period of anxiety, it's really a comfort for somebody to also be saying, Yes, I feel anxiety, but it's not really a comfort to get into an argument with people about something that Richard Dawkins said. Uh, and that's the thing, like definitely sometimes I'll be like things from online will massively change my day. Like, if, like, and I'm sure that that will only increase if I become a, a, a larger part of the public eye. And I, I don't, I have, again, ambivalent feelings about that. I feel like I'm more likely to just, like, get all of this triggering stuff from my being bullied at school. It's just going to come up again and again. Cause it already comes up when I'm watching people mm. argue online. And, you know, a lot of the things I do on Twitter, in, in answer to your earlier... I mean, we could really fill a whole podcast for what I do on, on social media. Very intelligent questions. <laughs> but, but, like, one of the things I do is watch other people have arguments, you mm. know? Watch other people's arguments and not comment, you know, because uh, uh, I don't feel able to or I'm too scared. And a lot of the time I'm really, really scared, which is not to say that, that people shouldn't call each other out I don't think that we should police people's anger I think a lot of people are justifiably angry I don't think we should say don't be angry but at the same time from my point of view and sure I'm privileged in all of these things but people being mean to me made me want to kill myself if that happens to me again you know online it's going to make me want to kill myself again you know and it does you know not, that's not something that's far away from my from my possibilities already and I'm lucky in that I don't think I would do it. I don't think I'm somebody who... I, 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 I'm lucky. I've never... I don't... You know, it's it's been something that I think about but never have ever really tried to do, right? But, I mean, I'm aware that it's a dangerous thing to enter into the internet for those reasons. People mm -hmm. are mean and they don't feel connected uh, to what they're doing. And they will say things without consideration for the human being on the other end. And... And people on all sides will do that, like of all ideologies, of all opinions. Like one of the things I, I see playing out on Twitter often is people I agree with so much politically doing things that are, are bullying, you know, calling out people endlessly for their use of language, but using problematic language themselves without noticing. You know, mm. it's like, fine, everyone uses problematic language and everyone should try not to, but... If you're shouting at somebody else for being whatever and you're using words when you're doing that, like mad or stupid or, you know, even worse words. I've seen some really abusive words used on all sides of 
arguments about abusive words. And it's understandable. When you're angry, it's understandable. Mm. The problem, I guess, the difference with a, a normal argument, a verbal argument, is that when you're angry, you say something in the heat of the moment, and you also do that on Twitter, but then it stays. Yeah. And, and tone is there on, in yeah. life as well. So if you're saying something ironically that is clear when it's not clear online or whatever like that. Yeah. In a way, you've you've always, since the internet, gravitated towards that kind of thing, though, don't you think? I mean, do you remember when you were obsessed with the Women's Hour notice board for quite a while and you got into some quite complicated situations with discussions on there? Oh, yeah. I mean, and that's a good point, actually. One of the things I did before I went on social media was I used to be quite a, quite a regular contributor to the Women's Hour notice board before it got taken down for being a, a place of hardcore arguments and the BBC didn't like that. Arguments with women of all ideologies, not just feminist women, and anti-feminist men. A lot of because Women's Hour is a kind of button pusher, it was where there was a lot of arguments about feminism and ideology and gender and all of these things happening and nice behavior as well nice behavior too mm. there was uh, some people I, I was quite friendly with on that on that board but it was where kind of gender wars were playing out and what I found interesting and and me to it apart from the fact that I've always listened to Women's Hour and I uh, until I got into the internet and podcasts and found alternative media the thing that attracted me to it was that the people having these arguments weren't media people necessarily they were people from all parts of society they were housewives and they were academics and they were men who were unemployed you know and there was a sense of 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 yeah like I don't know why I'm attracted to that I mean I have an interest in feminism and gender and and those things so that's maybe why I'm attracted to it but I also I don't know I think in I don't know I don't know I don't want to make any complete statements about it I think there's some value in arguing I also think there's some problems with arguing and I I always want I, I I look for and long for those moments when people change I, I, and think... I think you can change in those situations I think that's that is what you look for, and I also think do you, well. Do you think that you're also trying to find out always what you think about something? Yeah. And so talking to the widest variety of people you can about that is a good way of doing that. Right, and and I, I'm sure I don't do it all the time, and I'm sure I'm guilty of so many behaviours that are problematic. But I mean, I do sometimes change my mind change my position and it's interesting doing that online because if you're in the middle of an argument with someone and you say no oh actually no good point I'm sorry I take it all back I'm wrong they really get flabbergasted and they don't really know what to do because it is so unusual and I I kind of wish more people would do that because I feel like a lot of people do change but they don't you know you don't hear that you don't hear that part yeah Mm. it's it's a longer process and it's it's really powerful to hear people changing and understanding what they've done you know and I guess it's it's yeah it is that but at school I was the same I was always trying to get the, this was one of the reasons I was bullied so much is I was always trying to get the bullies to understand mm. change I was always trying to like demonstrate that like I, once I wrote a, an article that I wanted the, them to publish in the school magazine about what it was like to be a Melvin right which was my nickname for people who are not familiar with that listening and you know it was. It was a, 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 I think, a well-argued piece. It might have been a good piece in a in a in a national magazine. I mean, not saying it was good enough to be that, but it might have had some effect of getting mm. people to understand what it's like to be bullied in school. But it was never going to have any positive effect for me within school. that school. And the, and the teachers were right to not publish to not it. One of their few moments and when the teachers did the right thing. You're quite lucky, I think, <laughs> that the social media. And oh, opportunities didn't yeah. exist when you were at school because what you would have done is put that online and probably... Yeah, live journaled it. Yeah, and probably got quite a lot worse right. responses. Oh, yeah. I, I have no doubt that if the internet had existed when I was being bullied at school, my bullying would have been 100% worse. And it was pretty bad. Like, I don't want to, like, beat, bang my own drum and go on about it. Loads of people have had much worse lives than mine and my bullying wasn't that phys- wasn't that physical though they were physical moments because it was non-stop and it, it was all the time and it was everybody but if it was everybody at home as well if it was everywhere everywhere I went there was people commenting on my on my stuff it would have just been terrible you know 
and you wouldn't have been able to not engage with it so you would have carried on provoking the thing is with children that you 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 can't you can have reasonable conversations with them but you can't have that same kind of changing moment that you have with adults because they don't have that the clarity of perspective yeah i mean i think you can have those changing moments as as well as you can't i mean even with with teenagers i mean i i know that the 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 mind is still developing till the till you're 22 but i don't uh, and that means that you're like there's some things about risk or whatever that you have different relationship with but i i do think you are capable from from a very early age i mean in primary school mm. you, you all know kids who've changed right? i don't really mean incapable of change i just mean unresponsive to that kind of dialogue well i think most people never most people are always unresponsive to that kind of dialogue the, the, but but i did have experience of people changing their minds towards me within my oh, bullying okay. situation like you know owen one of my best friends he he originally was part of the people who bullied me nearly all of my friends by the end had probably bullied me casually like in a kind of melvin as i walked past previously in their in their school lives because that was this they were horrible they were just it was just what you did. Yeah. It was just like saying hello to somebody almost. You see that kid, you just say, you just shout Melvin. Melvin yeah. you know? we, had, we had people at our school who probably had the Melvin role. I don't think I ever, I mean, I was incredibly shy at school, so I don't think I ever would have spoken to anybody I didn't know like at all, let alone in that way. So I probably, and I'm not guilty of it, but I certainly was with groups of people where we, you know, people who had the Melvin role. Yeah, would have been called to or whatever without really being thought about. Right, and I, I, I wasn't the only Melvin. I mean, I was the only Melvin, but I definitely wasn't the only outcast kid mm. uh, that was treated that way. And some of my friends were treated a bit that way. I mean, it went really extreme with me because of the fact that I fought back and was always, like, not physically fought back, but was always trying to do that, to change them, to see, get them to see what it was like for me, to, to appeal to their humanity, um, which is not... It's not the advice I would give to a kid that was experiencing that. But, I, but you know, it did have its moments. There was, like, the moment in in the sixth film where I told everybody to start calling me Dave, and mm. they did. You know, people changed their minds at that. But then sixth film is, is getting older, yeah, right? it is. And there's, I definitely think... I mean, I didn't have any of those experiences, but I definitely did notice a change in the ethos of, of that group of young people. In the in sixth form, and I think a lot of people had a similar. It seems to be that age, and it's also a fresh start. It's choice as Some well. Some people you leave. Choose to stay. You, yeah, exactly. You, you choose to stay. You you maybe make different friends. Everybody's more of an individual. You're wearing your own clothes. You know, a lot of things change at that age, and and you're becoming adults. I mean, you right. are still children, really, but you are becoming adults, and there is a more mature, more um, human. But but I mean, it wasn't just at school where people changed. I mean, I you know I knew my you know, I knew my stepdad changed in some ways. Like he apologised for the things he'd done to me in in my childhood, and I I and I realised that he'd changed for the bad as well. I don't think all oh, that's the problem. Like I'm I'm interested in those moments of change, but those moments of change aren't always good ones. Like some of the things I I watch playing out on Twitter are people who change their minds to the opposite of the things I agree with and maybe they're right maybe they're wrong I think they're wrong obviously but you know for me that's a terrible change like I see people going from one side of of sex worker rights for example to the other side Mm. part of that is because they are sometimes bullied and that's one of the things that sets people in their definite beliefs yeah and maybe me being bullied set me in these definite beliefs that people can change and and that people should be like treated as humans like it maybe it's made me a kind of fundamentalist about that stuff um i don't know maybe i don't i don't know what i don't think i want to change that element of me there's lots of things I want to change, but not that one. No, so I'm no. not particularly interested in going. Oh, that's why. So I should. Uh... No, I don't. I don't think that, that you should change that. Yeah. I think that's a, a quality, not a, a problem. <laughs> I had I had three areas that I was going to talk about, but uh, we've we've spent 35 minutes on the first area, so well, we can... I don't know if I might cut. Uh, well, you're in one... charge, but we can always edit out anything to a shorter length if you want a shorter length, but you want to address all of the subjects. So well, really let's let's segue into the third 
thing and and, and come back to the second thing because okay. the, the third one we slightly touched on something that that has happened recently is your uh, incre- well you've always had it which is why we've we've touched on it already but there's been an increase i think in your interest in feminism and gender issues recently why do you think that is and where has that come from well yeah that's it i mean i it's come from the internet it's come from from being able to hear other people's analysis other people's points of view it's come from being better educated but it's also come from understanding myself better as I've looked at my past as I've done getting better acquainted and I've done true storytelling and I've done things where I've looked at my myself um, and my childhood and my adolescence and all of these things the thing that really is the constant problem for me has been gender has been has been patriarchy if you like and so on a personal level i it i've come to i've come to sort of see that more clearly and as i've seen that more clearly i see it more places but that said like you say it's always been a thing like the woman's hour notice board you know like listening to women's hour all my life like being given feminist books as a kid you know by broadly speaking feminist parents well although there were some complications within that feminist element and having feminist older sisters and feminism being a a thing that I always you know along with uh originally socialism uh but now a a bit of a different perspective I mean you know I guess I probably started off as a different kind of feminist too I, I don't think I was as intersectional thinking at all as a kid like and 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 when I look back at my my adolescence and childhood now, I do find you know problems with the ways I behaved and my twenties uh, with the ways I behaved, as well as ways that a gender oppressed me. I definitely see loads of ways that I have enforced the, the the very things that have caused me problems. But I think that I was you know the reason I was bullied at school. I think the biggest reason is because I didn't conform to set views of how men are supposed to be or boys are supposed to be and part of that was to do with kind of heteronormative attitude like people thought I was probably gay Um, part of that came from a kind of uh, misogynist kind of uh, attitude towards women so they I was more female because I you know I was seen as more female like I think a lot of the abuse that men get comes from comes from the abuse that women get because men get kind of policed in that way like and it comes from I don't know you know it comes from my mum telling me that I was bad for being a man Mm. you know that's probably the biggest kind of thing you know where it all comes from and you know I I'm glad to have got to a point where I can comfortably say I'm not bad for being a man (laughs) (laughs) that's good that's Uh, that's quite good progress yeah yeah I mean but yeah it's it's become but the thing is I didn't used to call myself a feminist because I didn't used to think men could be feminists and now I guess that's a way my feminism has changed and so again going back to social media some people still say that you can't can't. and 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 they're fine to say that there's no reason why people should think men can be feminists in some ways I understand why people think that men can't be feminists and I hear a lot of good arguments against it but I also I would never call myself a male feminist because that in itself is gender essentialist. That is saying that the fact that I'm male matters. Like, I think feminism is an issue for everyone. I think so. I think it's problematic, actually, to say that men can't be feminists because how I, I just don't see how feminism can do what it's trying to do without men on board. No, I agree with you, but I think part of the problem is, though, that men who call themselves feminists are often not feminists or uh, have suspicious motivations That's a different for that. thing. That doesn't mean that men can't be feminists. No, absolutely. That means absolutely. that those men are, are not feminists. Well, I feel like it means men like me... <laughs> God, I feel like I'm standing on a soapbox, but I feel like men like me need to be louder about it because if you're a better feminist than those male feminists, you need to be loud about it if you want to call yourself a feminist. But then at the same time, I don't think what what anyone calls me or themselves no, is relevant. it's not really Like, relevant. feminism is an action rather than a dis- well, identity in I some way. Well, although I think it way. is relevant in a way that, you, that anybody would say that 
I think it's relevant that anyone could say that a man can or can't be a feminist. I think that is a feminist issue. And uh, so while it may not be important what you call yourself, telling somebody not to call themselves something is significant, I think. But, I mean, it depends where you come from. So if... Uh, and. I, I, I think there is something in looking at men and women as a class. Like there's a, the, the the class of men have more power over the class of women, and I think there's something to that. It's worth considering that uh, the way that that functions, the way that hierarchy functions. But looking at it as black and white as that ignores all of the ways that this concept of gender oppresses everybody in all different directions. And that it, it, it also means that we're dividing into men and women and there's people in between that. Uh, and there's also, even, even if you're, even if you're cis, right, I'm cis, um, but I don't identify with a lot of things about being a man and loads of women don't identify with a lot of things about being a woman because those concepts of man, woman and other are all created by society. So we, we are policing ourselves instead of allowing ourselves to be diverse and beautiful and human. And that's because some people want some power. And that's how you have power, is you police people's sexuality, you police people's gender, uh, their race, all of these things, because you want to divide people and turn them against each other. But And that helps you to have your power and your, your money. But it... But also, those things are the things that really get us. Like, sex has a lot of power to control people. Mm. Because we want it. We want to have... We, you know, on some level, most people want to have sex. And, and and so, really getting into that and giving us guilt from an early age about it and giving us guilt about all sorts of things from an early age. Like, guilt is how society operates itself. Yeah, I think that's true. And I say that as someone who feels guilty about everything. Like, I feel guilty about all the things I've said in this already because I feel like... All of the positions I've taken are, are too complete and they're not nuanced enough. Like, every time I make a big statement... Oh, like, that's the problem with anything in any label, isn't it? I think increasingly I find the older I get, the harder I find it to to take a position on anything, which makes me a bit useless to have a conversation with because I will sound like I'm capitulating to almost anything because there's an, I can see an argument in more or less anything. But that means you're taking you know, some time to consider it, though. I think that... I think that your politics have changed over the years as well mm. and I think you've become more radical and more like definite in what you think but you take a lot longer to come to the conclusions and one of the things that you're definite about is that things aren't simple and there aren't any easy options mm-hmm. and I agree with that like that's the thing that there's always more complexity like about anything than any side is is taken I, sometimes I think it's politically useful to simplify things a little bit, but it, but it's always important to remember that there is that there's, that yeah. there's more to it. The people people are more complicated. Like when I say when I said earlier on, it's about having power and they keep their power. Who are the they? Well, they are people, just the same yeah, as us, absolutely. part of a system who are socialised in we're all these ways. And it's the group that has that power, rather yeah. than the individuals within it. Or the individuals within it are within it for whatever reason they are, and. Sometimes people consciously do it. Sometimes people con- like there's there's been many many people in power who've consciously tried to keep power and mm. have consciously tried to manipulate the public. But proportionally, the individuals are very small. But yeah, and even with. those individuals, why are they like that? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I really do want to go to the third subject, but just just before we do that, <laughs> one of the ways I wanted to go with the feminism issue was to talk about your show which yeah. you are taking to Edinburgh. And this has come out of your interest in feminism and gender. What is the show, first of all, that you're taking? And why do you think it's important that you do this? Well, at the moment, the show is a collection of notes in a word file that haven't even been written into a script yet. But those notes are about my personal journey through my understanding of gender, I guess. The show is called What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity. It's fully intended to have irony in all of those words. Like, I understand the name of that makes me sound like a dick in some ways. It makes me sound like I haven't changed from that uh, man that was hiding behind his newspaper, popping up (laughs) and saying, I start the week we're writing. It's about explaining, but with understanding the irony of explaining feminism and patriarchy to men primarily 
although I'm really happy to have have women in the audience really happy to have criticisms from any side I hope they're polite and not bullying but I, I I'm happy to listen to people from any side what I'm trying to do with it is to basically say these are the ways that patriarchy hurt me and these are the ways that I hurt people because of the patriarchy and the reason I'm using the word patriarchy is because we need a name, we need a word to describe our reality. And men, as Bell Hooks says, men don't use the word patriarchy. Like feminists say patriarchy and most men don't define as feminists. And so most men don't have a word to describe this system that makes us, uh, encourages us not to feel, not to like, not to be full, full humans, not to connect with our our are the other people around us because they're they're lesser than us that in, encourages us to work more you know work long hours and and at the in its worst you know takes boys and puts them into wars and kills them you know and and that's not to say that the men are the biggest casualties of war because they're not the biggest casualties of war are the women and children in the other in the civilian populations that we massacre but but the men doing that are still brutalised into it, you know, and often boys, you know, not even adults yet, are brutalised in that way. So there's lots of ways that men are fucked up by patriarchy as much as capitalism, I think. Like, being put into these boxes fucks things up for men. And I've had personal experiences of it. I want to talk about them. I want to talk about some of the complexities around it. And I also want to explain some of the terms, because that is a problem. What alienates people in these arguments is the, the big long words, the academic words. And there's a good reason for that, because academia is a patriarchal institution that tries to make people feel stupid mm. if they are not part of it. So people have an understandable resistance to, to, to new words created by academia, even as we love new words created by ourselves, right? But some of these words are really useful. And, and actually, I'm not just going to be explaining academic academic words I can't even say the word academic that's how unacademic I am I'm also going to be explaining some of the words we've created for ourselves some of the words uh, that and not to say academics aren't part of we so those words are still created for ourselves too but but some are like the hashtags and other things mm. that I've learned from the last five years of feminism I guess partly it's been bubbling up right hasn't it for all of these years I've been educating myself about not just feminism trans issues race issues listening to marginalised voices as much as I can, Dis people with disabilities, all of those things. I had all of these thoughts and reactions, but I haven't really expl uh, explained them, I haven't really stated them, because I haven't felt it's my place. Mm. And it's been bo boiling up in me so much that I kind of feel I have to just Do say it, and then I can just get on with my life and write some <laughs> fiction. <laughs> Um, that actually kind of leads quite nicely into the second subject that we missed. We're both quite obsessive people, <laughs> but in in different ways, and it manifests itself in different ways. But this does happen to you, where you, you get very obsessed with an idea, and you'll spend years on it in some way, and then eventually it comes it comes to be something. And uh, in a way, I think GBA is one of those things. Going back to like student radio right. stuff and sound... And listening to radio and podcasts and all the rest of it. And then also just your natural interest in conversation. Right. So GBA is the, is the second subject. And when you first came up with the idea for it, I couldn't see how it could possibly work. Let alone <laughs> carry on to uh, the stage where we're now doing 200th episodes. And I am somehow in involved in interviewing you. I yeah. This is bizarre. You're me. a reoccurring character. Yeah, <laughs> this is very weird. So um, quite quite often you, you have these ideas that seem like they're not going to work, but you just make them work and they become much bigger. Um, well, I don't know about that. I always think they're going to work. Well, you always <laughs> do, but I always think that they, they're not. Like Apples for Everyone, for example, that, that seemed like a crazy idea and that worked pretty well. Well, it's hard to say. I mean, that was a, a, a band I had and it was a big band of like maximum 15 people, I think, at the, the biggest. That's a crazy idea. It, it was, it was. And... But I don't know if you can say it worked. It worked I in some ways. Did. Yeah, we made some good music. We made some it? really good music. And, and you had quite a good following. And some great yeah. great times. Those, but, and those are th things that work, yeah. But I'm still going to try and make a band that, that works on my <laughs> level. So but anyway, Apples for Everyone isn't really where I was, I was going. Really, um, how, what I wanted to ask was how does GBA now, because I don't think even you imagined that it would be going on now, 
and have carried on so long and been as successful as it has been. I mean, not I, I, I know it's not got like thousands of listeners or whatever, or well, I don't I'm, know how many listeners it has I, actually. I feel I like no idea. GBA is really successful on my terms of what I consider success yeah. for sure. Like it fits my 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 terms of, of that, success. Yeah, mine too. So you know, I, no, I, but, I do mean that as a genuine. No, exactly. But when I was like referring to apples, that the it wasn't that we weren't a massive worldwide music sensation. It was that we. The perfectionist in me knew we feels could like we could have better. done better. Yeah. I feel like getting better acquainted has generally done the be- the best that it could be as a as a as a show, and then listeners can make their decisions either way on whether they like it or not. But I it it's it's given me so much in my life. I love it. How does it show. how does it compare with what you imagined it would be? I I, I don't know. You know, I mean, I really because I only really started it just to block out the how bad the previous podcast had been and I, I wanted to like refresh and re reposition myself I, I don't know if I have I didn't a bit like stand-up tragedy I didn't have any big ambitions for it when I started it actually I didn't like it was a good idea both of those things I thought were good ideas but I wasn't personally connected I didn't feel very personally connected to either of those ideas but with getting better acquainted very quickly I started to be like, wow, you know, people are so interesting and this is going like into places where I'm getting more honest conversations with people than I've ever really had. And just developing from there and seeing how it kind of, you know, I didn't, re- you know, at the beginning it was like there's loads of, the, the, the tagline that we I started with was there's loads of shows about famous people and this is for the rest of us. And that's the only kind of thought I had about it. I didn't realise it was going to become a bloody autobiography through conversation, which is another (laughs) tagline I've now got for it. I didn't realise it was going to be an oral history project. I didn't realise all of the the ways it would be interesting to me and all of the ways that, like, being able to make playlists of different strands and how it was like a shifting text that wasn't linear you know all of these things I had no idea about when I started it up I was just like I want to have some conversations that don't make me sound like a dick uh in public because I've had all of these conversations that made me sound like a dick in public and I feel like there's more to me and I don't want people to think I'm that person all the time and and it's the same with stand-up tragedy like I started that up because it's a good name right it's a Mm. good name I didn't realise that I've always had an affinity with tragedy. I have, but mm, I didn't realise. Like, of course, I mean, I, I, I love, I, I mean, I, I studied theatre, I, I studied Shakespeare. I was really, really into the, into Arthur Miller as a teenager in his uh, essays about modern tragedy that he had in his uh, in his plays. Yeah, I was always interested in, in tragedy, but I didn't realise I was when I came up with that that idea I was just like that's a good name for something that would be an interesting night I didn't realize that it was really ingrained with my own ideology and also what what Senate tragedy has become about in some ways is catharsis and that's something that I'm really interested in like that's what all of my that's what getting better acquainted is in some ways it's catharsis Mm -hmm. how Um, how do you or has has GBA changed you do you think yeah how It's made me better at listening. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I, I, do you think it's changed the way that you have conversations as well in real life? Yes. Uh, it, it, yeah, definitely. Although I've always been quite good on one-on-one conversations at listening and, and anyway, I think. Mm. Um, but it, it has definitely changed, yeah, the way I have conversations. It's definitely made, I think, one of the things that's been useful to me over the last few years is that I've kind of had changed my attitude towards how I treat, think of networking because I used to just be absolutely stressed and appalled by it in equal measures. Now I'm a little bit stressed by it, but when I get there, after the initial awkwardness, I don't, I, I, I'm more likely to treat the person as a as a person rather than a, a, as as somebody that might, either be useful to me or judge me like I'm much better at like in person listening a little bit more like maybe maybe what it's done is it's made me a little bit less judgmental Mm. which is a good thing yeah yeah 
Uh, it's probably also influenced your relationship with social media and with the, the issues that we've already been talking about, the, that you are more aware of people as people. Right. Perhaps. No, that's really true too. I mean, I, I mean, it's also changed me in ways of like coming to accept, like so many ways of like coming to acceptance with my book being bullied. Some of that's come through uh, getting better acquainted, I think, going back to my old school going back to Cardiff, going back to my old school, having conversations, for, and then my family life, coming to terms with my childhood, a lot of that's come through conversations with my mum on getting better acquainted, or other conversations I've had on getting better acquainted. It, it's, it's had a lot of those kind of moments uh, that have been really of personal significance to me and my, my sense of self, yeah. Do you think it's affected our relationship? I don't know. I, I asked this question and I thought it was an interesting question, but I haven't thought about whether I think it's affected our relationship. I don't, I don't know what I would say to that either. I think it might have. I think it, it's part. I think maybe it's part of the journey that we've been on in getting more honest with each other and more able to have conversations. Yeah, that's probably true. We've certainly... It's affected us in that you've been much more public... Than yeah, that does. Uh, you ever <laughs> expected yourself to be? This is true. Like the first time we recorded a conversation. Actually, the first time we recorded a conversation for getting better acquainted, it was a Christmas special, and you kind of didn't even realise it was almost. You didn't think of it as a recording. You no, I didn't. Really aware. No, I think I was quite drunk, wasn't I? And it was after like I'd, I'd had a late night working because we'd had a performance at school, so I'd come home from the school performance and opened a bottle of wine and was just like in Christmas mode. Yeah, it's really Christmassy. It yeah. feels nice. It feels quite intimate. But then the second one we did, you were so nervous about being the subject. So I think the first time we were talking about Christmas, so that yeah. was okay. But the se- even though you, I think you talk about very personal things in Christmas, how can you not? But the second time you came on, you were like so worried uh, about it in advance and you were a bit nervous about interviewing me today. Yeah. Nowhere near the levels of, of nervousness to that, that time before. Like, like you've be, you being on Getting Better Acquainted has made you a little bit, I think, more comfortable with being a voice heard by other people. I think that's true. Although I also think that I was nervous about doing this today because I've never done an interview with anyone before and I don't really know what I'm doing. But on the other hand, I'm probably always going to be more nervous about being interviewed because I'm in control right now, whereas I'm not in control when you're interviewing me. You could ask me anything. Yeah. And I'm not going to have planned a response, so I might say something stupid. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, that that's, yeah, that's your personal journey. But how it's affected us, I don't... I mean, yeah, maybe it's made us more uh, able to talk and get even closer and opener. I mean, it's really hard for me to separate out the strands for all of these things for me because I, I guess I've been in the process of becoming more and more open and comfortable with myself and understanding of who I who I am and analyzing the world in this kind of in these kind of broad political sort of pathways of of you know being anti the systems that oppress us of various different kinds all of those things that's been a gradual process for me like all my life it's been a process mm. and I've always been going in those directions I think with some stops off along the way to be a dick in a number of ways and so it's hard to say like wh- which came first which, which yeah I, I mean I don't think you can ever really separate the strands everything everything that happens to you is part of who you are and and is part of your life yeah. but and so actually probably the answer to any kind of question like that is yes it has whether yeah. you know how it right. how it has is, in a, is another matter really good point where do you see the future of GBA then we're at episode two well we're, we're around 200 there's no sign of it stopping I know I mean I don't know how it could end I mean, the only problem I have now is finding the time to edit the episodes or record the episodes or whatever. Like, there's no sort of sense for me of, like, it could end. You never stop meeting new people. And it's interesting to have people on a second time anyway. Mm. And it will be increasingly more interesting to have people on a second time, uh, which I've done quite frequently, but it will be even more interesting. As more years go yeah, by. Yeah, as more years go I by. I actually think that if you're still going in 10 years' time, it would actually be a really valuable thing to go back to everybody and yeah. do 
another interview. Do, yeah, exactly. When, when I run out of new people, if I do, which is impossible, but if I feel like I'm getting low on them, then yeah, just go back, you know, even go back from the start, like in order. Mm. Although I don't put them out in, in, uh, order. in, in order. So yeah, I don't put them out in, uh, in time order. That's the wrong word. Chronological. Chronological order. <laughs> there we go. The uh, last question that you ask everybody is, do you have anything to plug? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is a tricky one because I was thinking, because I have to have a different plug for every one of these days, right? Or mm. it's silly. I mean, I'm, I've, I know I've repeated some elements of my autobiography in these conversations as it is, but if I repeat the blooming plugs... Yeah. Um... And so I meant to plan what I was going to plug but you didn't. before this. I, yeah, that's right. I was thinking one of the things that me and you both really love to do is to watch amazing TV series. Mm. And so I thought this would be a good opportunity for us to recommend some TV series we like. We've watched quite a lot. We have. And so there's a lot of ones that everybody knows that Mm. we like like The Wire or Breaking Bad or Orange is the New Black but I I guess the less well known ones I think that I think everyone should listen to watch watch, that's right everyone should watch are the well I'm going to say that (laughs) The Americans Once Upon a Time and Our Friends in the North which is a retro series but it is a it's a great series and should be seen by. That's probably one of the first of ones we really watched together. Watched, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, can you think of any other series that people won't know? I mean, you know, we watch a lot of series, so if you like a really obvious series, we probably watch it, or we don't like it, and we haven't watched it. Uh, no, nothing really stands out that. Um, oh, my Mad Fat Diary. That was a good one too. My Mad oh, Fat Teenage Diary. Always, is that what it's called? Um, yeah, something like that. That's really good. I mean, and people might not watch watch that because it's a, it's more aimed at teenagers, but it's really not. I mean, it's really for everyone. What's the one that we always forget that was really really good, and we always forget about it, and it, and we forget that it was really good. Oh, well, Deadwood. Yeah, well, we forget Deadwood. We forget Six Feet Under, but that's because yeah. they're very early. I mean, obviously, the first series that I loved, apart from Our Friends in the North, I think is Buffy, was like one of my original series that I just. I thought was amazing and oh people oh I tell you what as well if you don't I know that it's controversial but Dollhouse is really good people is it controversial yeah loads of people don't like Dollhouse I think it's because the first couple of episodes really kind of played into sort of some notions some elements of the male gaze people felt like do you remember the first episode it felt really like what is this is this even a Joss Whedon show uh, yeah, I do thank you. It took a little while to get in into being good, but once it, you came to understand it was about surface yeah. rather than being surface, it was it was great. I mean, and you kind of have to trust Joss Whedon sometimes, don't you? Sometimes watch good series because it's the time <laughs> when TV is, as everyone knows, is the most exciting kind of art being made. I feel like on the block mm. at the moment. I mean. And if you want some people to make a series for you, uh, we, <laughs> we fancy we, that. <laughs> we, we, we like the idea of that, and we've got some we've got some ideas actually. We'd happily pitch you uh, if you. We, want we don't have any capabilities of making capabilities of making a series. That's we a have. bit misleading. You have we to fake it till you make it. You, oh, so, right, yeah. We're definitely capable. We of could definitely series. write a series. <laughs> yeah, we could we could write one. Yeah. And I reckon I could. You know, you learn quickly. You learn have you have to learn quickly. But you know, I, I know quite a lot about TV production. I did did bits of it here. All right, and there. we can definitely make a series. Yeah, yeah. that's right. We should be more com- <laughs> confident about it. Yeah, we got a whole we got a whole series planned out actually. We did that in a holiday last year. Our only holiday in years and uh, a lot of it was yeah, spent so coming it, up with an idea for a show. We can make you a series just buy us a holiday. Yeah, right. Buy us holidays <laughs> we'll make more series uh, for you. Yeah. Um anyway, so we probably should finish up. Uh, so the last thing that you ask your guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Bye everybody, thanks for listening. Everybody always says at this point, like, like if you're still here, or a lot, well, not everybody, but a lot of people say, if you're still listening, uh, I hope it wasn't too boring, uh, particularly the bits that I feel insecure about because I'm self-conscious about myself that nobody else will care about. Nobody's ever said that. 
No, I'm not mocking them. I'm mocking <laughs> you. I don't know who I'm mocking. Thanks for listening. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, uh, goodbye. Bye. Oh, now what do I do? How do you stop it? Mm-hmm. Oh, what? Only an hour and nine, nine minutes. Wow. Oh, you pressed the red button. Well, that's not clear, is it? That looks like record. So that's what happened in the alternative reality world where Jen is in charge of the podcast. Listen back to the three very different alternative reality versions of Getting Better Acquainted. We've had so far Helen Zoltzman, Chella Quint, and then yesterday's Bizarro World version presented by James Mackay and Sophia Walker. Tomorrow is the last episode of the GBA 200 season. Charlie Harrison will be the host and the guest will still be me. Get involved with the Getting Better Acquainted 200 celebrations by using the hashtag GBA200 and sharing your favourite shows of the over 200 episodes that have already been out. You can follow Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast. You can like it on Facebook. Subscribe to it pretty much anywhere that podcasts go to hang out with each other on the internet www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk is one place you can find it spread the word shout about it a little bit for me thank you so much for listening and remember there are lots of ways to get better acquainted